Amen. Well, I think we can safely say that fall is here. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you guys are one of those people. Like, you can't turn the heat on until November, right? I know that's just me. That's right. So uh, that, that's, that we blame Josh for the heat here today. No, we'll, we'll hopefully have it on before you know it. There's a bit of an issue with a mag filter that needs to get put in. But Lord willing, we'll be, we'll be heated up pretty soon. We had our leadership retreat yesterday. A number of you guys were there. In fact, I think it was the highest attendance we've had at a leadership retreat since we started them. Um, and uh, so God is doing something good. We have a lot of folks who are just committed and ready to dig down and do the work of ministry. And I think these 40 days of prayer have been a crucial time for us. Uh, still are, because we've got another week to go. I'm going to keep praying. Um, where God is, I think, not only are we speaking to God and we're communicating to God in prayer and worship, uh, but He's saying something to us, I think. He's leading us in a a particular direction. I I sense it from different conversations. And we've been talking about, uh, we've been looking at the miracles uh, in Scripture, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, the miracles of Jesus. And today I want to look at what is perhaps the mightiest miracle. (laughs) Now, last week we looked at the cross, Uh, And and the miracle of the cross, which is that our guilt was transferred from us onto Jesus. And then as he died for us, he died in our place as a sacrifice for us. And that is perhaps the greatest miracle of the Christian faith. But this miracle is perhaps the most visible and the mightiest and will 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 last for all eternity. We're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And uh, it's not Easter. Um, that's when you usually talk about the resurrection. Um, there's a story, a, a comic I saw before, where a guy who attends just on, on Easter, um, as the pastor's walking out and he preaches a sermon, the, the guy says, Pastor, you need to get a new message. You preach the same thing every year. <laughs> well, if you only come on Easter, you only hear about the resurrection. But the truth is, we want to hear about the resurrection all year round. And it's something that we celebrate all year round, not just on Easter. And as I said, it's perhaps the, perhaps the mightiest miracle of God. And you might think, what makes it really the, the mightiest miracle? Uh, certainly, somebody rising from the dead is a big deal. Don't get me wrong. But uh, there are some, and if you've read your Bibles, you know in the, in the Old Testament, there are a few examples where somebody who dies comes back to life. That does happen. Think of the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And then in Jesus' own ministry, there are a number of people who come back. Uh, there's Jairus' daughter. Who died, And shortly after, Jesus raises her from the dead. There's a lesser known story of the widow of Nain, her son who dies, that Jesus raises from the dead. And even more so is Lazarus, right? We all know the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was dead and decaying in the tomb for four days, longer than Jesus was actually in the tomb. Uh, So what about that? Why is Jesus' resurrection even more significant than Lazarus? And then, we didn't look at it last week, but at Jesus' very death... Uh, a lot of miracles happened, and one of them was that people came out of the tombs, it said. There were people who actually came to life. Maybe were dead for much longer even. So what makes Jesus specifically, his resurrection from the dead, so significant that it's the mightiest miracle of God? And the whole of the Christian faith really begins with his resurrection. Well, look with me at Luke 24, 36 to 49. Luke 24, 36 to 49. We'll have it on the screen as well. Uh, but the resurrection is the mightiest miracle of God and is life changing for us. It matters to us. It's life changing for us. Luke uh, 24, 39, uh, 36 to 49. We read this. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them 
and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Uh, look with me. If you can see in your bulletin, there is an outline to see where we're going. But the resurrection, as I said, is the mightiest miracle of God and is life-changing for us. So we start off in verse 36, that Jesus' resurrection brings peace to our chaos. That's one of the reasons why it's the most significant miracle. Verse 36, he says, as they were talking about these things. What are these things? Uh, a number of resurrection appearances have already occurred that Luke outlined. Uh, that he appeared to two of the disciples as they were on the road walking to the city of Emmaus. That he appeared to Peter, Simon Peter. Uh, but this is the first time uh, that he appears to all of them together. So they're all actually upstairs in a locked room, in the upper room at this point in time. Uh, and as they're talking about this, uh, this whisper, <laughs> this sort of conversation about is he alive? Because a few people have seen him here and there. As they're actually talking about that, what happens in 36? Jesus himself stands among them. It's him. All the whispers need to come to an end. Jesus is truly risen. He's appearing to all of the disciples right there as they're gathered together. And he has one word for them. Peace. Peace to you. Uh, you think about it. What a, and that's, first of all, that's a very common uh, Jewish greeting. Shalom is what he's saying. Uh, even today, when we were in Israel as a group, uh, you'd say, meet somebody new, you say shalom. And they say shalom. It's a very common greeting. But I think it has a particular added meaning here. Because here, he is bringing peace to their chaos. Uh, think about the chaos that his disciples have experienced. Uh, first of all, the world is chaotic. I mean, the world they live in was chaotic. Uh, they live in Israel, which is conquered by the Romans. Um, so who's really in charge? Uh, they believe that there's only one true living God. The Romans believe that there are multiple gods. So there are all different opinions about that. Uh, lifespans were pretty short. Infant mortality is pretty high. I mean, this is a pretty rough world. It's a world that is truly chaotic. But even just the lives of these specific disciples. Three years before this, this rabbi hits the scene out of nowhere, Jesus. And he says, follow me. And their whole world gets turned upside down. Uh, they leave their jobs. They leave their families for the time being. I mean, they saw them here from, from time to time. But for the most part, they're on the road with their family for three years. Uh, during that time, Jesus has this incredible teaching ministry. 
Uh, a teaching ministry, they say, yes, he speaks with authority. Nothing like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the current teachers of that day. He does these incredible miracles like we've looked at in the last few weeks. He calms a storm by simply rebuking it with his words. And they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? He creates food from virtually nothing. From five loaves and two fish, he makes it and multiplies it and feeds it to everyone. He can heal people just for, by his word. Even the centurion comes to him and says, just say the word and he shall be healed. Tens of thousands, we said, have come out to hear him. Uh, so they, all of a sudden, this three-year ministry, just, their whole world gets turned upside down. And then it comes crashing to an end, overnight almost. Uh, what happens is, Jesus is betrayed by one of the very 12 disciples that were following him all this time. He's sent over to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. They send him to the Romans, and he dies the most horrific death you can imagine. He dies by crucifixion. And you can think, if they're standing there, they're in hiding in this upper room with the doors locked. Their whole world is full of chaos. Everything has been turned upside down. Did Jesus, what was this whole thing? Did I just imagine this? I mean, what just happened these last three years? This is crazy. Uh, Did he lose? Uh, Was the whole thing wrong? Was he a false teacher, right teacher? I mean, we saw with our own eyes these miracles. And what has just happened? And then Jesus, into that very setting, steps in and says, peace. Everything comes back to order. Jesus is truly who he says he is. He's the Lord who has risen. And I like what the book of Romans says, that he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Uh, he didn't become the Son of God when he was risen. He was already the Son of God. He was always the Son of God. But he was declared with power to be the Son. It was clarified to everyone that he is exactly who he said he was. That all his claims about himself, all his claims about this world, all his claims about what was accomplished on the cross, all of it comes together because he's risen. It's kind of like if you take a a CEO out of a company, you know, who's, who's kind of leading it, the whole thing sort of gets scattered. Or you take a commander away from an army, but then you find out, then you bring them back into the situation. Everything sort of gets set back into order. Here's Jesus risen and with his disciples. And now... He tells him, peace, shalom, wholeness, fullness, completeness. It all is true. It all works together. And friends, the the cool thing about the resurrection is he's saying the same to us. Uh, Think about our own lives and how chaotic they can be at times. Um, First of all, the world is just chaotic. Um, It doesn't always seem orderly, right? And some people say there's no way that there is a sovereign God in charge of this. Everything just seems so chaotic. And we have hurricanes that hit States and take lives out of nowhere. And people who are just going about their lives thinking, here we go, it's just another fall. And now their lives or the lives of their loved ones is taken from them. I I talk to people, I mean, this is just, just how it works in pastoral ministry. People who go through incredible, tremendous suffering. Losing children and cancer and all these types of things, and they wonder, how, how is God really in, in charge of all this? It's so chaotic sometimes. It doesn't seem like there's order to this whole picture. Or think about following Jesus. I mean, when, when you start to, when you first become a Christian, particularly if you became Christian later in life, um, your whole world gets turned upside down. Uh, I, you know, I became a Christian at 14, so I was fairly young. Uh, but I would be in a totally different place right now. I don't even know where I would be. Uh, but I'd be in a totally different place right now if it wasn't for Jesus 
coming in and saving me and calling me to follow him and turning my whole life upside down and going a whole different direction. Uh, even this week, friends, for me, was a, a kind of a chaotic week. Uh, I spent uh, a lot of this week in the hospital, not for me, but for my son, uh, going through surgery and all these type of things. And, and then we had the leadership retreat, so it's preparing for that. And of course, I'm preaching on the resurrection, and I want to focus on getting ready for this sermon. It was just a chaotic week. But into our world, Jesus says, peace, shalom, I'm risen. <laughs> The whole thing's true. It all works out in the end. He's the risen Lord. He's in charge of all things. And yes, at times things seem chaotic and God allows him to go that way as he did with the disciples. But the risen Lord who's truly sitting on the throne will one day bring it all to consummation. He is risen. Peace. The disciples are just... This is just beyond what they can sort of bear. It's uh, beyond their belief. Look at what he says in 37. Uh, The disciples are startled. Uh, They're frightened, as you might imagine, as you and I would be. Uh, And for a while, they think that Jesus is just a spirit. Uh, Some of the old translations, I think, would say ghost. Uh, So are ghosts real? Or what, what does he mean? What we saw last week, Jesus said to the Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. So our bodies and our spirits can be separated. Uh, They will be separated. In fact, Paul says, and later on in the New Testament, to be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. So yes, there is the possibility of being separated from a physical body, and your spirit still remains alive, of course, and exists. Well, they're saying, who is this? Is this some spirit that's uh, here visiting us? And Jesus goes out of his way to make clear that he's not a disembodied spirit. Uh, That this is not merely a spiritual resurrection. Uh, This is not a hallucination. This is the real, actual, physical, risen Jesus. Uh, He goes out of his way. He says, look at me. You can see with your own eyes. More than that, look at my hands and feet. Touch me if you want. Uh, As he says to Thomas in in one of the other Gospels. Uh, You can imagine his hands will have the marks of the cross, of the nails. His feet as well. Uh, If that wasn't enough, he says, all right, give me something to eat. So they probably have some broiled fish there. That was, they're you know, very common, obviously, to eat uh, fish over around the Sea of Galilee. They give him a piece of broiled fish, and he eats it. Uh, so just word of advice, if you ever think you see a ghost, give him a piece of fish and see if he can eat it. Because okay? <laughs> if he can, it's not a ghost, I guarantee. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe we see ghosts, by the way. We could have a whole conversation about that. But I, I think that certainly the idea, the fact that we exist beyond our physical bodies is something in their minds and they recognize that reality and think perhaps that's what's going on here. Uh, Jesus goes out of the way, touch me, see me, realize that I'm not just a disembodied spirit. I'm the risen Lord. Who's, very, who's right here and is present with you. Now think about this, friends, that Jesus really was risen from the dead. Now, this happened in our very world, in history, uh, in the same world that Genghis Khan lives, in the same world that George Washington lives, in the same world that you and I live in, this very same physical world, he is risen from the dead. With a resurrected body. Uh, there have been numerous attempts, obviously, to try to explain this away and say, eh, maybe it wasn't a resurrection as we think about it. Maybe something else happened. One of them, of course, is that Jesus didn't really die. Uh, he just almost died, went into a comatose state, uh, and then sort of woke up from it. 
uh, and that's been debunked again and again. Uh, very simply, uh, the Romans were experts at killing people. <laughs> uh, the Roman soldiers who put Jesus to death, uh, particularly think of the centurion uh, on the cross, his life would be in stake if, at stake if he didn't make sure Jesus was dead. If he failed at a very simple duty to make sure that these people are dead, uh, then he himself would forfeit his own life. He's going to make sure that whoever is on that cross is dead. Uh, and when you think about the whole process of crucifixion, uh, there's no way anyone survives that. So people have basically thrown out that idea and said, no, that's not what happened. The disciples must have somehow stolen the body. That's what happened. And of course, we have that, that excuse right here uh, in the scriptures and other gospels. Uh, and we, that's debunked by the fact that there was a Roman guard guarding the place. But more than that, even if the disciples were able to steal the body, why would they go and die for something that they themselves knew was a lie? Uh, that doesn't even make any sense. Uh, was this just a legend? Well, if you have any study of, of legends, that's not how legends work. Legends take long periods of time, centuries usually, to arise. can't happen in the same generation where it can be proven to be false. But I think here's the best thing uh, that I think is so convincing of the resurrection. I've heard a historian say that there is, in a sense, a resurrection-sized hole in history. And what he means is something had to have happened. Something so big happened on that very, in this very time period that it went from here and changed the whole world. Uh, what would it take to convince a group of disciples, a, a relatively unimpressive disciples, to go forward... Uh, boldly preaching the gospel, changing the whole Roman Empire. Here's one historian, Michael Green said, It was a small group of 11 men, there's no Judas, whom Jesus commissioned to carry on his work and bring the gospel to the whole world. They were not distinguished. They were not well-educated. They had no influential backers. Remember, most of them were fishermen. In their own nation, they were nobodies. And in any case, their own nation was a mere second-class province on the eastern extremity of the Roman map. They were part of Israel, which is not that big of a country. And that these men went on and changed the whole Roman Empire and all of history. I like what, what uh, Kenneth Scott Latourette, he's a Yale historian. I actually have this quote. It's a lengthy one, so I have it up on the screen behind me. Uh, but he said this uh, about Christianity and its effect on the world. And what would it take to, to make a change in history like this, to, to set the whole direction of history in a different way? Uh, we, had, we have had much to say about the effects of Christianity upon mankind as a whole. Here has been the most potent force which mankind has known for the dispelling of illiteracy, for education, for the creation of schools, uh, for the emergence of new types of education, from Christianity have issued impulses for intellectual and geographic adventure. The universities were largely Christian creations. Music, architecture, painting, poetry, philosophy owe some of their greatest achievements to Christianity. Democracy, as it was known in the 19th and 20th century, was in large part the outgrowth of Christian teaching. The abolition of slavery was chiefly due to Christianity. So were the measures taken to protect the Indians against the exploitation of the whites, the most helpful movements for the regulation of war, for the mitigation of suffering entailed by war, for the eventual abolition of war owe uh, their inception to Christian faith. The nursing profession had the same origin. The extension of Western methods of surgery was chiefly due to Christian missionary enterprise in the elevation of the, st of the status of women as a whole. Something happened 
in the first century, right there in Israel, that changed the entire world. What was it? As I said, there's a resurrection-sized hole in history. It was the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, And again, this wasn't just a, a spiritual resurrection. This wasn't a resurrection in their hearts. This was a very real physical resurrection that happened in history. And the day will come, friends, when our resurrection will happen as well. Uh, see, here's the difference uh, between Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection of all those other people I had mentioned at the beginning of this message. Jesus' resurrection was a resurrection to a resurrected body, a new body. Uh, so Lazarus was risen from the dead, which was amazing after four days of starting to decay in the tomb. And Lazarus went from there and he lived another 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, who knows, and died again. He, wasn't, he was sort of resuscitated in the same way that somebody might be cl- declared clinically dead at a hospital and then is somehow revived from that and comes back. But Jesus' resurrection was something different. It was a resurrection as the first fruits of that which is to come for all of us. Uh, when you think about it, our hope, sometimes we get this mixed up. We think that our hope uh, primarily is to, be, is to die and have our spirits go to be with God. Now that happens. I believe that, of course, 100%. Our spirits go to heaven. But that's not the ultimate hope of the Christian life. In fact, it's something far better than that. (laughs) That's only step one. Uh, That's only for a temporary time. Our ultimate hope is to be reunited with a resurrected body, to be with him forever. He's the first fruits. He's the beginning of what's to come for all of us. You know what that means, friends? That means that this world that we live in, is good. It's good. It wasn't, it's not a bad world. Uh, that's sort of an ancient Greek kind of mentality. Physical is bad, spiritual is good. This world is good, and all of the things of this world are good. Food is good. <laughs> if food wasn't good, Jesus wouldn't have taken the food and eaten it in front of them. Food is a good thing that God gives us for our sustenance, and food is something we'll be doing and enjoying forever. <laughs> I don't know about you, that's an encouragement to me, because I love food. <laughs> food is wonderful. Uh, food is part of this creation, it's, and it's good. In fact, all that God's made is good. Uh, when you think about it, oftentimes we get questions like, uh, will there be animals in heaven? So, you love your pet, dog, cat, whatever. And sometimes I answer and say, dogs go to heaven, but your cat will surely be in hell. But that, that's, that's just joking, okay? Uh, no, so the reality is this. <laughs> Anytime we have a description of heaven in Scripture, uh, oh, not only any time, but mo- most often, it's described with animals. And they're used as part of the illustration. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. It's not the lion, by the way. That's sort of changed in popular conversation. But it's the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The little kid will play by the cobra. Why would God use those illustrations? Because creation is good. It's part of what he's made, and he's made it good. And he'll be here with us Forever. Another common question is, is oceans. Doesn't it say in the Bible that there will be no sea? I love the ocean. I love the beach. I understand the revelation is filled with symbolism. Uh, the ocean was seen symbolically as the place of chaos, uh, the place of, of evil and uh, lack of control. Uh, and that's the point there in Revelation when he says there will be no sea, that there will be order. He's not saying that there will be no actual physical ocean. That's not the point. Uh, Certainly, we live in a world that God created oceans, and oceans are good. The resurrection was real, and so will ours be. The resurrection affirms the scriptures. It affirms the scriptures. Look at 44 to 47. 
Crucial, he says, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Uh, this is something, I, this isn't just coming out of nowhere, disciples. Uh, not only have I told you that this is going to happen, that I'm going to die and rise again, uh, but more than that, the scriptures you've had for centuries told you this. And actually, he mentions the, the three major parts of the Hebrew Bible, uh, the law, the Torah, uh, the prophets, the Nevaim, and then the Psalms, the Ketuvim, the written, the, the writings of the scriptures. He's saying the whole Bible uh, testifies to the fact that the Christ was to come and die and rise again. Yes, we could look at specific sort of proof texts that prove this, and there, he may have certainly had some in mind, but he's saying this is the whole flow of the Bible. It was all about this moment, my coming, my death, my resurrection. And I love 45, he opens their minds to understand. As if they could see the Bible with whole new eyes for the first time. Uh, Verse 46, it's written that Christ would suffer and rise again. Uh, It's written. It's planned. Uh, It's part of what God had wanted to happen from the beginning. Uh, He was not taken by surprise by the death of Jesus. Uh, How many people have ever seen the movie Slumdog Millionaire? A few great movie. Oh man, this illustration may not work so well if so many people haven't seen it, but in the very beginning of the movie, Jamal Malik, uh, an Indian young man, um, has to go to basically who wants to be a millionaire. Um, And he's able to answer all of the questions right to save his own life and to save uh, the the life of his his, uh, future wife, his girlfriend at the time. But the very beginning of the movie, it lists this question. Jamal Malik is one question away from winning 20 million rupees. How did he do it? A, he cheated. B, he's lucky. C, he's a genius. D, it is written. (laughs) I love that. It is written. And I think we could say in in the same sense about Jesus. How did he do this? A, he cheated. He fooled us. He tricked us all. (laughs) B, he's lucky. It was somehow one in a trillion chance occurrence that somebody would somehow rise from the dead somehow, some way. A physiological phenomenon. See, he's a genius. He masterminded this whole plan somehow, some way. Or D, it is written. Uh, This was God's plan from the beginning. And he's working out his perfect plan for us. But one of the things we see here is Jesus certainly here validates the centrality and the authority of the scriptures. Uh, That's very important for us as Christians. Uh, He opens their eyes to see it, the the authority of the Bible. If you you had to really push me on and say, Rick, why why do you accept the Bible to be authoritative? We could talk about all of the different aspects of it, the prophecies, but why do you really recognize this to be authoritative? Here's my simple answer. Because Jesus did. (laughs) And I believe in Jesus. So this was his book. Uh, He believed it was authoritative. Uh, He believed that it was authoritative for himself and for all of us, uh, that it was true and that it had spiritual authority, and I go with Jesus. So if I'm on Jesus, Team Jesus, (laughs) then I go with the book that he believed was authoritative. Uh, This is the book he believed was fulfilled in his own ministry. Now, don't get me wrong. It's the, the most reliable book you can imagine from ancient history. In fact, one of the cool things we got to do uh, in D.C. was go visit the Museum of the Bible. 
which is pretty cool. Actually, it was a relatively new museum. It's a good museum, actually. Really good. In fact, I got a few pictures I want to share with you. Um, so one of the cool things is the entrance to the Museum of the Bible. Um, and so what it is, is those are two huge Gutenberg plates. The Gutenberg was the printing press, the first real printing press, right? Uh, and so those are models of the Gutenberg uh, press. And the Gutenberg press was used, um, was most well known for, used to print copies of the Bible. Uh, when that happened, that's where it sort of began the spread of the Bible. Uh, so that's kind of a cool entrance. But the next one is really neat. So that's a 1611 King James Version first edition Bible. <laughs> so that's the first edition from, from 1611. Uh, as the Bible began to spread, it would be translated into different languages. Uh, it would be, you know, obviously worked straight from the Greek and Hebrew. And people would die for it. In fact, we have the English Bible here in front of us. We take it for granted. We've got a number of them sitting in the library and everywhere. And, uh, to get this book into English, it uh, took a man, not only, one, uh, not only years and years of work, uh, but the man who did it, William Tyndall, was burned at the stake. Actually, because he was considered a scholar, they showed him mercy and hanged him to death first and then burned him. But the idea that, that people, individuals, could read this book at that point uh, was not acceptable. One more thing, just on the reliability of the Bible. Uh, it's the most, as I said, the most... So sometimes you hear someone will say, uh, you can't believe in the Bible because it's written by men and it's got multiple, multiple uh, textual problems to it. It's really not true. It actually can be factually disproven very easily. Uh, for any ancient document that we have, it is the most well-documented uh, we have. We have... Over 5,000 ancient copies of the Bible. And there's a whole science called textual criticism where you compare the copies and try to come to the most accurate text you can come to. And other outside history affirms the Bible again and again and again. This next uh, picture is a little tiny tablet. Pretty amazing little thing. So the oldest story written uh, that we have is a, is a little tablet, a uh, story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, and it's a neat little story, which I'm not going to go into the details. Uh, but the cool thing, and the reason why that's in the Museum of the Bible, is because the story talks about a giant flood that happened in the land. Now, if there was a huge flood, Israel would not be the only ones that know about it, right? Other ancient civilizations would have a story about a flood. Well, guess what? We now know that they do. <laughs> Because it corroborates what the scriptures have told us all along. That there was this giant flood. And after the flood, civilization spread. Other civilizations would have that story and it would begin to change. My point in saying this is that don't let anyone convince you that the Bible is not reliable. Simply not true. It can be factually disproven very easily. But the real key question, as he says here, is to read the scriptures looking for God to open our minds to understand them. Some of you guys, you know, if you don't have a lot of experience reading the Bible, it's okay. It's, you're at a church. You're learning how to read the Bible. That's good. You're, you're where you're supposed to be. Uh, I would just say open up the Bible um, prayerfully, meditatively. Just, you don't have to read fast. You're not trying, it's not a race to get through it. So slowly uh, reading through it, thinking about what's being said considering it carefully, what is God saying? And don't forget to think about, now how does this apply to me? 
What is God speaking? Uh, that, and, and how does it affect my life? What is he calling me to? What is he convicting me to? What is he encouraging me, encouraging me about? I just, again, encourage you to just get into the scriptures for yourself. Men and women have died so that you could have that book in your hands throughout church history. Read it prayerfully and read it and think through what's being said. Listen carefully to what God is saying even to you. Friends, when we come, fourthly, Jesus' resurrection calls us to be witnesses. Calls us to be witnesses. 48 and 49. Uh, you are witnesses of these things. And a witness is two things. A witness is someone who sees or experiences something. And a witness is someone who speaks. So a witness in court is somebody who has seen the crime. And somebody who now stands or sits, actually, in a court of law and speaks about what he or she has seen. Uh, so he's saying to his disciples, you're witnesses. Uh, you've been with me for three years. You've seen the whole thing. And now you're also witnesses with your tongue. Now it's time for you to speak up. And I think the same can be said of us. You say, well, I haven't seen it for, with my own eyes. But you've seen it. You've experienced God's grace and his love. And you certainly read it in the scriptures. Now it's time to witness with our mouths. 49, behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father. That refers almost certainly to the Holy Spirit. The presence of God with us. As Pastor Mike was saying earlier, that in each believing Christian is the dwelling of the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We're called to be witnesses. We're called to get this message out there to the world. But don't even try to do it without God's help. <laughs> don't even try to do it without the Holy Spirit. You will fail. He's saying to the disciples, just stay put. Because if you try to get out there and start talking about the Lord and start telling people about Jesus, it's not going to do anything. It's going to be a waste of time until you have the Spirit of God. Uh, the Spirit of God is the third person of the Trinity. He's the very presence of God with us. Uh, this is an area where I think that we maybe needs to learn a little bit from charismatics without taking the whole picture. But I think charismatics have something to teach us, the, the need, the dependency upon the Holy Spirit. That not only is he working in us and empowering us to speak about Jesus, he's working in the people we're talking to. He's already begun a work in their hearts as well. Uh, he's the one who opens doors. Uh, you're not going to be able to kick open spiritual doors uh, by our own strength. It takes his work. He begins some, uh, work, and working in someone's life. And as we begin to talk to them and witness about Jesus, he has made them receptive and ready to hear. But notice, friends, we're called to be witnesses. How crucial is that? Uh, we just had our, our leadership retreat yesterday, as I mentioned, and the whole topic was communication. And uh, just the idea of communication is pretty neat, isn't it? That you have something in your mind and in your heart uh, that you want to, someone else to know about. And the only way you do that is to communicate. You can do that with words. You can do that writing down. You can do that um, with actions. You can do that with facial expressions, uh, with tears or laughter. But you want to communicate. You want someone else to sense and feel and know what's in you that becomes in them. And, and basically, thing is God wants to communicate with us. Right, uh, Going back to the, the scriptures real quickly, uh, some people have said, I, I mean, can you really limit God by the Bible? No, we can't limit God. But God can intentionally limit himself in ways that can be understood. Because if God just spoke in God language, nobody would understand. It would be a waste of time. <laughs> uh, what would be the point of it? But God, if he loves us and he wants us to know him, 
then he might speak in our language. And as, as the Bible says, as men are carried along by the Holy Spirit, he speaks so we can grasp it. But now, as those who have received it, we're called to share it as well, to communicate it, to witness to others that they might know him as well. Uh, the cool thing is, friends, as we're praying this week for revival, uh, we're praying that God does a mighty work here. Uh, the neat thing is, God, by his spirit, is already at work. If he's not, then we're wasting our time, as we just mentioned. He's called us to be witnesses. He wants us to communicate his love and grace in Jesus to other people. Uh, you know, it, it's easy to get discouraged um, about Christianity and what's happening. Is Christianity dying or is it, is it growing? Is it, you know, now certainly around the world, Christianity is growing rapidly. Uh, we, we see that certainly in Africa. Uh, we see that in Asia, uh, China, certainly, and, and South America in many ways, too. It's, the gospel is spreading quickly. Is it dying here in the United States? Actually, I think what's happening here is it's becoming refined. It's re- becoming refined. Here's a, uh, an article in The Federalist. New Harvard research says U.S. Christianity is not shrinking, but growing stronger. Notice carefully we're saying growing stronger. Uh, Mainline churches, so mainline would be churches that have really lost the authority of Scripture and the Gospel. Uh, Mainline churches are tanking as if they have supersized millstones around their necks. Uh, Yes, these churches are hemorrhaging members in startling numbers. But many of those folks are not leaving Christianity. They are simply not going elsewhere. Because of this shifting, other very different kinds of churches are holding strong in crowds and have been, have been for as long as such data has been collected. In some ways, they are even growing. This is what the new research has found. The percentage of Americans who attend church more than once a week, pray daily, and accept the Bible as wholly reliable, and I think we can say the, the reality of Jesus' resurrection, and deeply instructive to their lives, has remained absolutely steel-bar constant for the last 50 years or more, right up to today. So what's happening is people who, whose faith is really, you know, kind of not really, they don't have the faith in the authority of Scripture or the resurrection, they're kind of emptying out in churches. But churches that actually believe in the gospel, uh, they're growing, getting stronger and healthier and perhaps even growing. And the good news is, friends, here in New England in particular, uh, there's a mission field around us. Uh, we have the opportunity to look around us and say, of all the places and all the parts of our country where there is a need for witnesses of the resurrection, of the gospel of grace, right here. Uh, This is considered the most secular part of our country. We talked about this at the leadership retreat, but less than 4% of people in New England go to an evangelical church. So if you met 100 people, let's say you meet 99 people because you're one of the 100, only three buddies in that group would be attending an evangelical church here in New England which I love, because that means we have an opportunity to be right in a mission field as we're right here. As James Taylor was saying earlier, we don't have to go to the nations, although going to the nations is part of the calling. Don't get me wrong, we support our missionaries. We just recently sent missionaries to Far East Asia, but we have a mission field right around us to talk to those around us who don't know the Lord Jesus and tell them the good news, that there is a God in heaven who loves us, who sent his son 
who died for us in our place that our guilt would be transferred off of us and put on him as a sacrifice for us, that rose from the dead as the first fruits of a resurrection for all of us to come. So friends, as we go this week, let's pray. Let's pray for revival. Uh, let's pray that God brings new life, real life, in our area, that his name would be proclaimed. I'm not sure if you guys are, I'm going to end with this, but I've been reading your book, How to Pray, by R.A. Torrey. Uh, I've been enjoying it, uh, but interestingly enough, uh, I'm coming to the part of the book, and I didn't even know this was going to be the case, but he's where he talks about revival uh, particularly. And uh, this was convicting for me as we think about revival. Page 75 He says this, Many pray for a revival. That certainly is a prayer that is pleasing to God and in line with His will. But many prayers for revivals are purely selfish. Some churches desire revival so that their membership may be increased or so that their church may have more power and influence in the community. Ouch. Some churches may want revival so that their church treasury may be filled or so that a good report may be made at their denomination, summarize. For such low purposes as these, churches and ministers are often praying for revival and God does not answer the prayer. We should pray for a revival because we cannot endure the dishonor of God caused by the worldliness of the church. The sins of unbelievers and the proud unbelief of the day. We should pray for revival because God's word is being made void. We should pray for revival so that God may be glorified by the outpouring of his spirit on the church of Christ. For these reasons, first and above all, we should pray for revival. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you so much for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That this, this really happened. <laughs> that the Lord Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and his body lay dead in a tomb for three days. And that same body... <laughs> when his spirit from heaven returned to it, was risen, and out from the tomb he came. And we thank you, Lord, that the power of the resurrection dwells in us. The power of the Holy Spirit is in your people today. Not only, Lord, transforming us to new life, changing our lives and molding us into the image of Christ, but empowering us as witnesses of this very thing, of this resurrection. Lord, we have hope. And Lord, we have hope not just in this life, although certainly, Lord, the blessings abound in this life as your followers, but we have a hope that leads us into all eternity. Open our mouths, Lord. Fill our hearts with a burden, a joyful burden to share this good news, to speak up about Jesus and be witnesses. But more than that, Lord, we pray your spirit would already be at work in those who hear in our city. Lord, we look to you to open doors, close doors where you want them closed, and open new doors where you want them opened, and bring many to yourself, Lord, for the sake of your name and your holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. Amen.